Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will talk about relationships, animal research, and a bit about racism, but no specifics. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, what the heck is oxytocin and what does it do? If you have heard of oxytocin before, you've probably heard about it as the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. Oxytocin, the love hormone. So what is oxytocin and why is it considered the love hormone? Oxytocin, also known as the cuddle hormone. And this cuddle chemical, it's oxytocin. So the in-love hormone is known as oxytocin. Sound familiar? Oxytocin has other nicknames, too. It's called the morality molecule, the hug hormone, and although it is less catchy, I like to point out it's also the racism hormone. Those are just a few of the things oxytocin has been implicated in. But how can one hormone do all of those things? In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into the world of oxytocin research. We'll talk about why some people believe it's a panacea slash cure-all to everyone's relationship problems, while to others, it's a love hormone that's not quite as cuddly as we like to think. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... On the last episode, I talked about periods post-COVID vaccine. I had my first dose a few weeks ago, which is super exciting and such a relief. I was waiting to see if it would affect my period, but I didn't really notice any difference. I also didn't have any side effects other than a sore arm for about 24 hours. I'm so grateful to live in a place and time where we have access to vaccines. People in less wealthy countries do not have access to the vaccines I have access to in Canada, and that is a great injustice. I also wanted to note some misinformation that's been circulating where people are concerned about being affected by other people who have vaccines. This is bananas. You definitely cannot be affected by being around someone else who has been vaccinated for COVID. There is no such thing as, quote, shedding of the vaccine. I even read about a private school that's banning teachers from getting vaccines because they're worried about shedding. In the last episode, I mentioned that Dr. Kate Clancy is doing a survey about COVID vaccines and periods. And last week, Dr. Clancy also found the source of the misinformation about this so-called shedding of of the vaccine and posted it on Instagram. Apparently, the source of confusion was misinterpretation of a Pfizer document that talked about what would happen if some of the vaccine splashed onto the skin of the person getting it, and then what would happen if their children or others were exposed to it because it was on their skin. They called this, quote, study intervention due to environmental exposure, unquote. In context, it literally meant being exposed to the liquid of the vaccine because it was on somebody's body. But some people on the internet have taken it to mean that just being around someone who is vaccinated means you have environmental exposure to the vaccine. That is just not true. Once you have the vaccine in you, the only person it affects is you. Thanks so much to Dr. Clancy for bringing that source to light. Now, back to oxytocin. 
I first learned about oxytocin when I was 19 years old and read a book called The Alchemy of Love and Lust by Teresa Crenshaw, MD. As someone who now has a PhD specializing in hormones, I do not recommend this book. Much of what was in it was an exaggeration and in some cases fabrication to make things sound more interesting than they actually are, or to make it sound like we know more about hormones and the alchemy of love and lust than we actually do. But to 19-year-old me, it was basically gospel. Among other things, I learned that oxytocin was released in response to orgasm and that it was responsible for people bonding. Since I already fancied myself a sex education expert, I added this tidbit to my arsenal of info and proceeded to tell everyone this crucial info about how to make someone become attached to you. While the book was less than accurate, it kind of shaped my future. At the time, I was thinking about going to university, and after reading the book, I remember declaring to an older acquaintance, if I go back to school, I'm going to study hormonal psychology. The man I declared this to informed me there was no such thing as hormonal psychology. He had been to university and studied psychology, so I believed him. It wasn't until years later I had a TA in university whose research was on hormones and psychology and sex. Turns out it was a real thing after all. And now I study sex, hormones, and psychology for a living. Often we talk about hormones as though they control our behavior. But as I've mentioned before on this podcast, hormones only increase the likelihood of a behavior occurring. For example, we say testosterone makes you horny or oxytocin makes you love someone. But of course, it's never that simple. Hormones are not that powerful. So what is oxytocin? It's a peptide hormone. This means it's a hormone made of amino acids bound together by peptide bonds. Oxytocin is present in and has effects on both our central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and our peripheral nervous system, which is everything outside the brain and spinal cord. Oxytocin is produced in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus and gets to the peripheral nervous system via the posterior pituitary gland, where cells release oxytocin directly into the bloodstream. In the central nervous system, oxytocin can be released from neurons in several parts of the brain. I mention the central and peripheral nervous systems because oxytocin has specific effects depending on where we're talking about. In the peripheral nervous system, oxytocin has physical effects. In the central nervous system, it affects your brain, which can alter your psychology and your behavior. With all hormones, your behavior or your environment can alter the hormones, and then the hormones can alter your behavior and psychology. It's this ongoing reciprocal relationship. Let's start by talking about the physical effects of oxytocin, because these are non-controversial. Oxytocin is present in all mammal species. Mammals are defined by the existence of mammary glands that can feed young. Mammals, mammary. Oxytocin is heavily involved in mammalian birth and feeding of infant offspring. In the peripheral nervous system, oxytocin is responsible for inducing uterine contractions that occur when someone gives birth. It causes major pain, but oxytocin helps spit that baby out. Oxytocin is also responsible for the milk letdown response, telling the body to release milk via nipples. Breastfeeding itself actually also further increases oxytocin release. In hospitals, some pregnant people in labor are given Pitocin, 
which is a synthetic version of oxytocin. The purpose of this is to induce more contractions of the uterus and speed up the labor. I'm not familiar with the whens and whys of using Pitocin during birth, but if you're ever wondering what it was, it's essentially an oxytocin substitute. Looking beyond childbirth, studies of humans have also shown levels of oxytocin in the blood increase in response to sexual arousal and orgasm. So, my original knowledge about oxytocin and orgasm was one part of that book that was correct. Oxytocin is also a stress hormone. It increases in response to stress, similar to other stress hormones like cortisol, and it's believed to help kind of calm us down during times of stress. There are other physical effects that are less studied. Oxytocin can be involved in fluid retention, like the closely related vasopressin hormone, also known as antidiuretic hormone, and it's believed to be involved with appetite regulation and some cardiac functions. Oxytocin does a lot in our body, but probably what you're here to hear about are oxytocin's psychological effects, so let's jump to those. This is where things get a bit foggier. Much of what we know about the psychological effects of oxytocin is from studies in non-human animals, mostly rodents. We do know some things about oxytocin in human brains and its relationship to human psychology, but it's much more murky. One thing that I can clearly state is that oxytocin in humans and other mammals is a social hormone that's involved in many aspects of social life. Let's start with the clearest links between the physical effects of oxytocin and the psychological effects. We know that oxytocin is released during childbirth in mammalian species. Psychologically, it's also necessary for bonding between parents and offspring. Experiments where oxytocin is blocked in the brains of rodents find that the animals don't care for their young. We can't do similar experiments in humans, but it's believed that oxytocin is necessary for bonding between parents and offspring in all mammalian species. In species where both parents are involved in caregiving, the males of the species have higher levels of oxytocin and oxytocin receptors in their brain, indicating that oxytocin is involved in parent-offspring bonding in males and females. Oxytocin levels are elevated in the blood of parents and infants, human and not, when they cuddle or have other close physical contact. So yes, oxytocin is a cuddle hormone. Oxytocin is involved in helping to create bonds between parents and offspring because it's required for the offspring to survive. Babies need to drink milk, so there needs to be a mechanism to make the milk provider stick around. But it is involved in other kinds of physical touch, too. In humans, for example, massage increases oxytocin even when it has nothing to do with parental care or bonding. But physical contact with other humans is important, and oxytocin is released to likely have physical effects on the body. In some species, it is just the female who raises the young. In other species, both parents are involved. Oxytocin systems for parent-child bonding are co-opted for other types of bonding as well. There are actually many types of bonding that oxytocin can be involved in, but pretty much all of the research focuses on pair bonds between animal parents or pair bonds within human romantic couples. Most of what we know about oxytocin and pair bonding comes from some adorable little rodents called voles. Well, maybe not so adorable if you're afraid of rodents, but I think they're super cute. There are a bunch of vole species, and what is cool about them is that some of the species are monogamous and form pair bonds, and some species mate and never see each other again. 
Researchers have been studying monogamous and non-monogamous voles for decades now, and we know a lot about their oxytocin systems and how those systems relate to bonding. Prairie voles are the most studied monogamous voles. Two prairie voles will mate and then pair bond. They will create an underground burrow to nest in and raise their offspring together. In many cases, their offspring also stick around and help raise other offspring. They're actually not always totally sexually monogamous, but they are socially monogamous in that they stay living with their mate. Compare this to the more promiscuous meadow voles. These animals will meet in a meadow, mate, and then go along their merry ways. The brains of monogamous and non-monogamous voles show clear differences in the amount of oxytocin receptors that they have. To have an effect, all hormones need a receptor to bind to in order to activate changes in the brain. The more available receptors, the more effect a hormone can have. If there's no receptors, the hormone essentially can't do anything. So the monogamous prairie voles have significantly higher levels of oxytocin receptors in critical parts of their brain compared to the non-monogamous montane or meadow voles. They also have higher levels of oxytocin circulating in their brains. With non-human animal research, we're able to peer inside the brains of animals and see exactly what's happening and where the oxytocin is made and where it's going. This is why we know so much about oxytocin in the brains of voles. Not only can we observe the brain differences between monogamous and non-monogamous voles, but researchers can also manipulate oxytocin and oxytocin receptors to experimentally test the effects of oxytocin. In prairie voles, blocking oxytocin receptors or turning off oxytocin genes reduces the vole's pair bonding ability and makes them act more like the non-monogamous voles. The opposite can also be done with the meadow voles. If they have oxytocin injected into their brains or have their genes manipulated to have more oxytocin receptors, they are more likely to form pair bonds. In voles, there's a very clear link between high levels of oxytocin and oxytocin receptors and pair bonding. But is pair bonding love? As I've said, we know so much about oxytocin in non-human animals, particularly those voles. And because we have all of this info, people have taken it and applied it to humans. So we've taken this oxytocin bonding information and translated it into oxytocin equals love, and then from there, believing that oxytocin can be used to repair relationship problems, and by extension, all of society's problems writ large. Some people want oxytocin to be magic, but it isn't magic. Here are some reasons why. One of the most common questions I get is how to translate the vole research to humans. And, well, voles aren't humans. People also ask me if there's a way to test for monogamy genes in humans. And my answer is... Probably, uh, but because humans are more complex than voles, it likely wouldn't mean much. Our social lives are so complicated and our frontal lobes are so large, we can make choices about our relationships that go beyond our level of oxytocin. Oxytocin is not really a love hormone. In humans, it is probably involved in bonding and attachment, but both attachment and love are much more complicated than a hormone. The problem is, human studies of oxytocin are tricky. It's a relatively new field, and there's still so much we don't know. Many studies look at the link between behavior and oxytocin levels in blood samples. 
The problem with this is that for oxytocin to have an effect on our behavior, it needs to be doing something in our brains. We don't know if oxytocin in the blood corresponds with oxytocin in the brain. It could be that increasing oxytocin from orgasms is just because it's involved in the various muscle contractions that occur when we have orgasms. It might not mean anything about our brain structure or our bonding. In humans, we do see correlations between blood oxytocin and things like cuddling, and there have been studies that do spinal taps to get levels of oxytocin in the central nervous system. But those are few and far between. And they don't tell us what's happening in the brain, just that there's oxytocin circulating in the area. We can look at human brains in MRI scanners, and we do know that when people view images of their monogamous romantic partner that they're in love with, brain areas that are high in oxytocin receptors and prairie voles also seem to be involved in humans viewing loved ones. But still, we can't directly link it to oxytocin. We can't assume that vole brain activity translates to human brain activity. This type of thing happens all the time in research. A phenomenon is demonstrated in a non-human animal, and then it's applied directly to humans, usually by popular media. There's even a Twitter account handle, Just Says in Mice, whose sole purpose is to call out articles that tout exciting new research findings without clarifying that the study was just done in mice. As the name of the account says, it just posts articles along with the words, in mice. A key piece of evidence in support of the role of oxytocin in bonding is that similar findings have been found in multiple mammalian species. So this adds to the likelihood that the information would also translate to humans. In addition to bonding and cuddling, there are a number of human-specific traits that oxytocin has been implicated in. For the first few years of human oxytocin research, we were limited to sampling it in blood. But beginning in 2005, researchers started administering oxytocin through a nasal spray. Having an experimental paradigm where people can either inhale oxytocin or a placebo is important because then we can make cause and effect statements about the role of oxytocin. This sounds great, but I want to mention some major caveats before I launch into it. First, there is something called the blood-brain barrier that prevents certain substances from crossing from the bloodstream into the central nervous system. Your brain is a very important organ, so it has an extra fortress of protection. For a long time, it was believed that oxytocin did not cross the blood-brain barrier, so this means once it was released into the bloodstream, it doesn't come back into the brain. And it also means that we thought intranasal oxytocin couldn't cross into the brain. In recent years, there has been evidence that suggests that oxytocin can cross the blood-brain barrier, at least in small amounts. We don't know how much intranasal oxytocin gets into the brain, but it seems that if enough is administered, a sufficient amount can get into the brain to have an effect. Of course, with humans, we can't really know where in the brain the oxytocin is going. It's not like non-human animal research where we can administer oxytocin directly into the brain, then kill the animal to see where the oxytocin went. There have been fMRI studies that show differences in brain activity in response to oxytocin versus placebo, but again, we don't know specifically how oxytocin might cause those activation differences. Another important tidbit about oxytocin research is that the vast majority of the oxytocin nasal spray studies have been done on cisgender men. 
Because of oxytocin's role in increasing uterine contractions, there was concern that it could cause either uterine pain or unintended abortions. Nowadays, people with uteruses are able to use it in some places as long as they take a pregnancy test first, but very few studies have included women. With those caveats, let's talk about oxytocin nasal spray research. The first study where people were given oxytocin found that it increased trust in the men who received it. The study was an economic study where participants had to give away money and trust others to return it, and if they did trust others, they would get rewarded. The men who snorted oxytocin showed more trust by being more likely to give away a maximum amount of money, compared to the placebo group. Many of the early studies using intranasal oxytocin were done using economic paradigms, so seeing if people would trust others in various money-related endeavors. This is where it started its reputation as the moral molecule. Researchers found that not only were men who inhaled oxytocin more likely to trust others, they also behaved more fairly themselves. Oxytocin was also linked to more generosity and cooperation in research. Again, oxytocin just seemed too good to be true. Just get people to sniff oxytocin and the world will be a more trusting and generous place. However... There have also been studies that found in certain contexts, oxytocin is associated with reduced trust. It seems that oxytocin may lead you to be more trusting, cooperative, and altruistic to those you already trust, those who you perceive as your in-group. Humans are really good at categorizing people into groups. When we talk about in-groups and out-groups, often people think of race. And of course, racial categories are definitely a major way in which people categorize themselves. But in-groups and out-groups can easily be manipulated. Take hockey, for example. In the NHL, Habs fans and Maple Leafs fans are bitter enemies. But if those same bitter enemies are watching Team Canada play the USA in the Olympics, suddenly the former enemies are now in the same in-group. Their behavior and biology towards their former out-group members changes. This is handy because it can be used to manipulate people into in-groups and out-groups in experiments. And we see that oxytocin strengthens in-group trust, but reduces out-group trust during competitive activities. So depending on who you're talking to or referring to, the effect of oxytocin differs. Even in non-competitive activities, oxytocin still seems to enhance in-group loyalty for existing ethnic groups. The trolley problem is a classic philosophical moral dilemma, recently featured in the TV show The Good Place. In moral psychology, this dilemma and others like it are used to assess people's moral decision-making. Participants are told there's a trolley headed toward five people who are tied to a track and cannot escape. You are standing by a lever that will switch the trolley to a different track. If you pull it, you will save the five people, but there's one person on the other track that will be killed. So your options are do nothing and five people die, or intervene and one person dies. In a study using the trolley problem and other moral dilemmas, researchers in the Netherlands used existing ethnic groups that Dutch people would see as their outgroups. The researchers presented them with various scenarios and changed who would be sacrificed or harmed in the various moral dilemmas. They found that when Dutch men inhaled oxytocin, they were less likely to sacrifice people in their in-group, so other Dutch people, regardless of whether it meant pulling the lever or not. 
So again, demonstrating the role of oxytocin in separating the in-group versus the out-group. And this is why I call it the racism hormone. I just think it's really important to recognize that oxytocin is complex and its effects change depending on the context. So no, we can't just give it to everyone and it will make the world a better place. We can't just get our partner to snort some and fall back in love with us. It's complicated. When I teach classes about social neuroscience, I repeat again and again the phrase, context matters. This is true for many biological things and social things and social neuroscience things. And it's particularly true for oxytocin. I've only delved into a few oxytocin topics on this podcast, but there are also many other things it's involved in. Social memory, emotion recognition, empathy, the list goes on. I haven't even talked about the genetics research, which does exist, but no, is not for monogamy testing. It's likely that the functions of oxytocin in humans is similar to that of other mammals for the more basic functions, like bonding and attachment. But for more complex things like trust and distrust, at this point, the evidence in humans is shaky. We don't fully understand the role of oxytocin in humans yet, but that hasn't stopped people from writing think pieces explaining how to increase your oxytocin naturally, or how oxytocin can be used to enhance therapy or repair relationships. We have all had times in our lives where we have felt unloved or had conflict in our relationships. Who wouldn't want to fix that with a nasal spray? We want that magic. We want the easy solution. But oxytocin isn't magic, and it likely isn't the cure for all that ails us. I hope from this episode that you are able to take away the complexity that underlies oxytocin. It is absolutely involved with human social behavior, but it's not straightforward. Hopefully the next time you see an article proclaiming the glory of oxytocin, the love hormone, you'll know to take it with a grain of salt. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.